Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along to episode 39 of the Howie Games. We come to you this week from the third Ashes Test in Perth. Nice. By the way, it'd be great if you could do us a favour and hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform or possibly even write a review for us. It helps us to get the show out there. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Now, this week's episode, our guest is the biggest person I've ever, ever met. This bloke stands at 7 foot 2 inches, or in modern vernacular, 218 centimetres tall. When he rolled into the Triple M studio in Melbourne and we shook hands, my whole hand disappeared inside his big paw, as did half my wrist. Luke Longley has a truly incredible story to tell. Longley again, 16 from Longley, delivered by Michael Jordan. The big man, who was born in Victoria, is a pioneer in Australian sport. He was the very first Australian to play in the NBA in the United States, forging a path that many have since successfully followed. Not only that, Luke won three championship rings as an integral part of possibly the greatest basketball team of all time, the mighty, mighty Chicago Bulls. Fair lineup, isn't it? This episode includes everything. Luke discusses his famous teammates, Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen, his coach, Phil Jackson, what life on the road with the most famous sporting team on the planet was really like, private jets, checking into hotels under assumed names, winning a three-peat of titles. Luke Longley's story is like few I've ever heard. It's bloody brilliant. Enjoy. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Looks like a legit piece of kit If that doesn't record then we're in real trouble No, we are recording at the moment So welcome to the Howie Games uh, Luke Longley, great to see you mate And I really appreciate you coming in for a chat no worries, it's nice to be in there and um, nice to have, sounds like we're going to have a chat about basketball, which is good because where I live and in my world, I barely ever talk about basketball outside of um, when I'm coaching, obviously I, I do a little bit of that, but mostly I'm talking to the dog. You know, yeah, right. So you, you were just showing me where you live. Mm. Can I just firstly say, you lucky bastard, you were showing me yeah, photos yeah. of out your front door. Where are you? You're, you're, you're out so, in the yeah, sticks. So yeah, I live... Um, about 20, with the first money I ever made, which was a bubble gum, you know, those trading card deals I used to have in the 80s and 90s, yeah. before I even got any money playing professional basketball, I, I signed on to be a exclusive on one of those trading card deals and I put a deposit down on this old farm on the beach that no one really seemed to want. Right. Um, had a house on it, had a freshwater spring on it and right basically on the beach down uh, near, not far from Denmark right. uh, in West Australia. So it's five hours south of Perth, for those that don't know. And uh, then it was a very, very quiet town, which I was what I was looking for. Mm. The, the town's sort of 15 k's away, but you could still get most things you needed. Uh, these days, tourism has found it and there's there's restaurants and wineries and it's, it's a happening little... Spectacular place. Place, yeah, too. It's great. How That's... much was the basketball card deal worth? Oh, I can't remember, but it certainly didn't pay for the whole place. Right. They gave me my deposit. Um, so, yeah, and I've been wanting to live down there ever since, but had kids in school and you know, a life to live. Um, but the kids have all gone off and gotten jobs and gone to university, and uh, my wife's work is um, mobile, I suppose you could say. Right. What does and she do? 
She does um, she, well, she does a lot of things. So it's all around food. So she's done a lot of food television. She right. did MasterChef Junior as a as a judge. Oh, cool. She's had a couple of Foxtel. Um, What's her name? Anna Gare is her name. Right. We might write, plug here while we're, yeah, we're, plug like, here while we're doing it. Just, just, re- just finished her third cookbook, which right. is um, Simply Delicious, which is very good. Um, I, I can vouch for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the quality control officer. <laughs> um, so when, when I did, it was just a really simple little shack, but we had to bolt on this commercial kitchen to the side, so the kitchen's nearly as big as the house where we Why? live now as a result. Um so yeah, she can live down there with her work and then travel when she wants to and she has to go abroad. Uh, and then my my work, I really most of my work's from from home. Um, and then I do a little bit of coaching with our national team as an assistant coach. Went to Rio, going to go to Tokyo, I think. Um, got to qualify first, so yeah, I don't get ahead yeah, of myself. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it works great. We can live in the middle of the bush, and most of the time, a lot of the time, she's away working. It's me and the dog. So. Yeah, you know, I chat to myself a bit, but that gets a bit boring. Do you start chatting back to yourself or not? Yeah, now and again you find yourself stumbling <laughs> through the woods chatting to yourself when you right. <laughs> put the, yeah put your shoes back on, Luke, and get home. You know? But the, the the great thing I love about this podcast is I get to chat with people um, in a positive frame of mind, which people enjoy that have um, that have motivated me or influenced me or had an effect on me. I've just enjoyed, and I've never been a, a massive um, basketball fan, yeah. but you were part of one of the great periods and possibly the greatest basketball team ever to play and the first boat can go to the NBA and we'll get to all that but low key is not the way to describe you it's almost like you, like you, you show where you, you just explain where you live you've almost just disappeared from that world like you're one of our most famed athletes yet mm. we never sort of really hear from you and more recently when you joined so, basketball again was that a conscious decision yeah mate it's, it's funnily enough it's all been conscious so when I when I was got draft I'll tell you the story so it's a good point and I have made a study of keeping low profile and I like it that way and yeah um and I totally respect that other people like to maximize their profiles and commercialize it I um I didn't and I don't and um but it started from a, a, a really basic ethics course. I think it was an ethics course I did in college. Right. And, or, and, and then another one we did, which was the philosophy. Anyway, long story short, I established this idea when I was very young that, um, that television was a big problem socially, um, not the content, just the medium. Right. Um, that people, instead of watch, sitting around a table and sharing stories with their parents and the sort of that vertical learning or that, mm. that you get from your parents and their experiences and their grandparents, people sitting around televisions and that, you know, the conversation even then became about what was on television and there was this distancing effect. Um, that was then. That was then. Now. So, so, and obviously it's gotten more so. So I made a conscious decision at that stage, which was, you know, stupid really, but that I didn't want to capitalise on the TV thing. And I did do a couple of endorsements and I... Uh, one with, uh, with Nike, obviously, and um, Sprite, and I put that money into a foundation that I started up that was for combating exactly that. Um, and mostly right. it was focused in, in the Aboriginal direction at that stage. But I had a crooked accountant. It was about half a million bucks in that uh, in that foundation. It's a very socially aware decision to make as a young boy. Yeah, and, and very frustrating for... Um, for the MBA office in Australia who oh, finally had a product that they could promote. Um, and in hindsight, I probably didn't do basketball any favours. Like, basketball needed me to step up. Uh, and instead, what I did is I bought a property down south and went and got into other things. And anyway... Uh, and it's sort about of, the Crooked Account? Oh, so the Crooked Account blew up the foundation, took a bunch, you know, the money disappeared, um, which mm. was a real shame. Did you catch up with him or not? 
Yeah, yeah, that's all sorted. But it not all it didn't get all the money back. But anyway, so that was to me that was just another another point. Of, you know, stay out of it. So yeah, I've never really I've never really had any desire to, to build a profile and and um, commercialise what I what I did. Um, but it's still lovely to talk about it, and it's you know I will often you not think about it for months at a time, and then something like this will come up, and right. I get to talk about it. So what I made you excited. say yes to this when I emailed you through Basketball Australia? Um, I suppose a growing as as the assistant coach of the national team, or just a growing feeling that I should continue to give back where I can and how I can, and the game is it's a great game, and it's given me a lot, and I love the game. Um, and so, if I can, things that I can do to help without you know, this sound like fun. Um, Hopefully, it is. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's how I ended up here. I, I don't mind doing stuff. I just don't search it out. Yeah. Right. So tell me. Let's go back from the start. Where did you grow up, and what was your family all about? <laughs> so I grew up in. I'm um, loving the beanie, by the way, too. Oh. For those that can't see him, he's a man from the west. Where it gets cold, but it's chilly here in Melbourne. It you is got, chilly. You, you here got in a Melbourne. big sort of like you're out in WA bush style beanie on as well. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So is the only one I grabbed on the way out of the house. Um, so my daughter, I'm staying with my daughter here and she's got a share house, you know, which means they don't run the heater because they're all on a bus, you know, student, right. student budget. So where are you sleeping? I'm just crashing in, in, her, in her room. Right. Right, but... Um, Has she got a bed big enough to... Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. She's she's a big girl. Okay. Um, so she's got a full big bed. Um but it's cold, you know. Yeah, I don't run it. I just I tried to tell the bucks. Can we can we turn the heater on while I'm here? I'll give you twenty bucks. You know, <laughs> let's just keep the place on. So yeah, I'm feeling the feeling the um, feeling the chill. So you, did you grow up in Perth itself? Grew up in Fremantle, right? Um, at that stage, there's not a lot of kids in there. No kids in Fremantle, right in the west end of Freo. And um, what'd you folks do? My dad's an architect. Mum was an educator. Right. Um, we grew up in an old warehouse. Dad being an architect, right? So he had to buy an old building and do it up. And so we grew up doing that. I think that's how I got. Uh, that's how I got decent at basketball. At least at the skill part of it is there was no kids. It was an old. It's an old fishing and and commercial uh, port. So I just used, Dad put up a room and I just used to shoot the ball all the time. That's how I got good. Right. Yeah. And then um, I used to on my holidays I used to go down south to Denmark and areas like that. And then I actually. Um, tell a story sometimes um, I chased a girl down there I loved her so much I went and worked on her family dairy for a couple of holidays you know what was her name Go <laughs> on. She'll be embarrassed. But, um, Come on. What was her name? Uh, Kate was her uh, name. How old so, were you at the time? Uh, 14 or 15. So she was I, a hottie, obviously. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so I used to go down there hoping that maybe she'd fall in love with me, but she never did. <laughs> so I didn't get the girl, but I got the region. Right. Know? And I've been going there ever since. Yeah, um, learned so, how to ride a motorbike and chase cows around. And that was that was about all that happened. So you went chasing a girl, and you end up chasing cows. That's I like, right. I yeah, like it. They're so, e- easier to catch <laughs> at and 14. more plentiful too. That's right. In yeah. Southern WA. So the obvious question when you walk in here, and you, you won't remember we met years ago. I reckon it was Channel Seven Sports World, hosted by Joanna Griggs. Um, you came on as a panelist. I was working as assistant producer. And it, obviously, when you walk into a room, people mm. think, "Geez, he's a big bastard." Yeah. Were you always a big bastard? Like, how tall are you? I've always been. Oh, we could we could lose the bastard bit, but <laughs> right, but right. I've always been big. <laughs> um, but yeah, nah. okay, just big then. That's fair call. So, mum's six five. Right. Uh, dad's six ten. Um, so I would like you know the, the photos in primary school. There's all the other kids, and then there's me, head and shoulders above. And I just stayed. I was just always just taller than everyone else, and um, that seemed normal. You know, were you happy with that? You know, some really tall kids sort of almost sort of slink down in life. No, yeah, I've never I've never been much of a slinker. I don't think my, both my daughters are six five, and wow. they stand up straight. 
Right. Like they're, they're, um, and so we've always talked about that. And, and I suppose because I grew up around tall people, I felt like it was normal. And, and basketball enables that too. Of course too, it you does. Know? So what, 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 how tall are you? 7'2". Well, I was. I reckon I'm starting to shrink. Right. And what would you have played at? How many kegs? Oh, 130. Right. What would you be now? Oh, yeah, 140. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you talked about your wife. She'd have to That's make sure. That's part of the well, reason. Yeah. I was about to say, you must yeah. tuck a bit away. I do. Um, we eat, she, she cooks very healthy food and it's all good. But, um, yeah, there, there's that there's that part of it. But, um, yeah, I th- probably beer's got more to do with the extra <laughs> 10 kilos than the food, to be, to be frank. What's the hardest thing about being um, a different size to the general population? I call it the dollhouse effect. So um, I'm going to give you a really crude example. Yep. Imagine that the toilets that you use every day hit you just below your calf, yep. about there. Yeah. You know, right. well, the doors you walk through are sort of just at front tooth hole. Right, right. Um, you try to get in an Uber and you've got to do 15 minutes of yoga before you get in just to, <laughs> just to fold yourself into a Toyota Corolla. Right. Um, but probably really the actually the biggest impact it's had is that uh, I think when I was a young bloke, uh, when you go out socially, you, yep. you, you just everyone always notices. There's no sneaking into the, you know, I wasn't sneaking into the pub at no. 16 because they, they spot you every time. You know, it's hard it's hard to, um, to blend in, let's put it that way. And then obviously when I going to profile in Chicago, that, that became even more obvious because it wasn't just, oh, who's that tall bastard, as you would say. But that tall bastard is, <laughs> yeah. plays for the Bulls and, yeah, so it goes on. So that's that's probably been the biggest impact is just um, the sense that you're always conspicuous, you know. So when it's good explain living five hours from the city. Well, <laughs> yeah, on a farm in the middle of nowhere, yeah. when do you start becoming good at basketball? Like, what what were you going to do if you weren't going to be a basketball? What- oh, I was I was all over the place. Right. One minute I was a marine biologist, uh, the next minute I was an architect. Then I think someone told me at one stage I told them I was going to be an underwater architect. <laughs> you know, like combining well, marine yeah, biology yeah, and architecture. It. That's it. So well, who knows? I, you know, um, I don't know what I was going to be. I, really, basketball. I, I played rugby league as a kid in Perth, which is an obscure thing to have gotten into. Gee, um, and basketball was always just something I enjoyed doing, and I suppose that's where a lot of that's where it's got to start. Yeah. Um, and then I got recruited to go to college in in America, totally by accident. So how does that process happen? They, well, nowadays very differently, but yeah. back then, Andrew Vlahoff, one of my old teammates, yep. went and played high school over there. His dad um, understood that that's what how he's going to get exposure. Played very well, came back to Australia, and a few of the recruiters followed him down. One of them ended up recruiting, or a couple of them ended up recruiting me, and I went to the University of New Mexico. So they went to watch him and recruited you? Found me by accident. Playing for? Just locally in Perth. So what, what's, is there a phone call or a letter? You're playing basketball in Perth and all of a sudden someone's offering you an amazing education on the other yeah, side so of the world. Yeah, so the actual recruiters came down to try to get Andrew to sign on the dotted line, physically came to Perth. Right. And then um, he sort of said, oh, mate, there's these recruiters, come down and have a few shots with me. And then they, so they, if you think, put yourself in their shoes, um, every seven-foot kid with two hands, as in a left and a right, in America was being recruited by the very best schools in the country, you know, prize. Uh, there was no internet in those days, so it wasn't like I'd been on you. You know, no one yeah. knew. No one knew that I was there. So they go down chasing what is already a prize and just effectively uncover a hidden talent. Is what they, you know, what they imagined they'd they'd found a seven footer who could catch and shoot and do a few things. Had a few, you know, bad habits as well. You right. know, I didn't have the American sort of thing where I felt like it was going to be my career and I was super impassioned about. It. I was just, oh yeah, sounds like fun. I've seen right. Animal House, you know. <laughs> College could be a good thing. 
Um, I've seen Animal House. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, the younger people who might listen to this probably don't know Animal House, but from my generation it was pre- pretty seminal. You yeah, know? It's a frat house set yeah. up where you just get on the turps and chase girls all the that's time. That's right. Toga parties and, and, and the whatnot. So, and is that what it was? There was a bit of that. Right. Yeah. Didn't chase any girls, but lots of toga parties. Right. <laughs> so University of New Mexico. University of New Mexico. So, yeah, they recruited me out of the blue. Uh, I got recruited by Hawaii too, but... Um, Made the decision, another mature decision, I suppose. If I went to Hawaii, I'd probably be really good at the toga parties and not very good at basketball. Right. Or surfing or whatever I got into. So I went to New Mexico. Yeah. Oh, the other reason is my mother decided that she went and had a look at the two universities, decided she was going to go to the University of Hawaii. So right. I said, easy, Mum, I'm going to New Mexico. <laughs> I'm going to the yeah. other one. Yeah. So what was it like as a young bloke from WA in the – so what are we talking here? Are we talking the early 80s? Mm, yeah. And all of a sudden you're in New Mexico, no family, no friends. No internet. No internet. No phones, no mobile phones. Bit of a step. Um, it was a step. I had, in, in, in between time, I'd had a couple of years at AIS, the Institute yep. of Sport in Canberra. But New Mexico is pretty different um, culturally, you know, physically, there's no ocean. Took me a while to figure out left and right, or east and west without an ocean to sort yeah. of refer to or a <laughs> sea breeze to, to <laughs> stick your nose into. Yeah, not many um, sea breezes hitting Albuquerque. But, uh, but exciting, you know, it was an adventure. I was just up for an adventure. And I still didn't, my, I, my plan wasn't the NBA. I literally was there to have a good time. And uh, in my freshman year, so in college you got four years, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, my freshman year, didn't play much, really skinny. Um, but the coach was sort of in my ear about it. Then the coach got fired, new coach, coach came along in my sophomore year. By oh, the end of my freshman year I had a, one good game and everyone was wild about it. New coach came along sophomore year and just basically said, right, you're starting, you're our man, we're going to you. And um, yeah. And so the, it was great great for me. But uh, at the same time, I discovered the, the weight room. So I was probably 230 pounds then, whatever that is, 100 kilos, something like that. Right, and then you hit the weights. And I just got stuck into the weights and the protein powders and the raw eggs and whatever I could. So I went from 230 to 285 over a three-year period. And we just eating like a beast to do that? Yeah, yeah, everything I could lay my hands on. How many eggs are we talking in you? Oh, man, you should have bought some chickens, would have saved <laughs> me some money. Right. Um, but found a, found a strength coach um, that was prepared to come in every morning and lift with me, and you know, he had a young family. That's so in hindsight, that was a pretty big commitment from him. But, yeah, smashed out the weights and got my body organised and... Um, yeah, so my sophomore year was good. Then my junior year, I started dominating the world. Like, I found my game and started to get really good. And I was an All-American that year, honourable mention All-American, I suppose, as a distinction, um, which is lower than All-American, yep. believe it or not. Um, and, yeah, the pro scouts all said, come to NBA now, we'll take you now. And I chose to stay for my fourth year because uh, I wanted to get to the NCAA tournament and like my teammates, all that sort of stuff. And we did get the NCAA tournament that year and, um, yeah, got drafted into the pros from there. So well, New Mexico you, well, was well, great. What were you studying? Well, I was studying architecture, right. but the Seoul Olympics was in the middle of all that. And uh, the way it worked is the it's a long, it's, it's probably a bit boring story, but you have to stay academically eligible. Yeah, yeah grade point average yeah. and all that stuff. But they gave us two semesters off because the Seoul Olympics bridged one semester and the next one, which is three quarters of a year, three semesters in the American year then, right. which means I didn't have to go to school for nearly a year, which is when I really hit the weights in the gym and that's actually what my game boomed from the Seoul Olympics because I went back and there was no school and I just got stuck into it. So at that point, 
I, I knew I was going to go to the pros and I just took I took easy classes and spent my whole time in the gym. So I still don't have a degree. I have one employable qualification. I'll, bet, I'll give you three guesses what it is and you won't guess. Um, size? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, what that's, that's not a qualification. <laughs> not, not as far, no, I'm a Masterclass 5C captain. So, Are you now? So, so what can you drive? Boats? Yeah, uh, not not ocean liners, but right. sort of um, fishing boats, ferry boats, small okay. ferries, commercially. Yeah. Does that come in handy? No, no. Well, <laughs> it comes in. Handy. I did it as a, as a bit of a. I just made a commitment to myself to be good at it, you know. So I bought a boat. I built a boat when I came back here. Right. And we used to do charters up the west coast, and we went up into Papua New Guinea on dive dive charters and stuff. And you have to get thirty months of sea time to get your master class five. And so I got that over a a four-year period and when did the coursework and yes yeah, so I'm a master class fighter how do we get go. to that have you been to Caviang in Papua New Guinea no uh, good waves up there and they do a yeah. bit of diving up there well at that stage I was more into diving than the footy uh, than the footy than the, yeah, the, than the surfing the footy on right. yeah. um, anyway so, I'm rambling now let's, no, 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 let's no. get so, refocused so you, you played in Seoul yeah as a as a what was that as a 21 year old or something no how, 18 year old how's that it's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it was great because there was no expectations. We're Australia, you know. We weren't supposed to do anything. We came fourth, so we really. Which is as still as as well as we've done, isn't it? Yeah, we've yeah, never been. Never I've medals. been to I've been to four Olympics, three as a player, one as a coach. Actually, I've been to five, one as a commentator. I've seen us come fourth and come personally fourth, playing in that four times out of five. I think. Wow. Yeah. Was that so? Dream team in the Olympics at that stage? That was Barcelona. Right. So there was college okay. guys in in Seoul in '88. Right. But we weren't coming close to beating them. They were much. We we weren't tooled up for that at that stage. Um, we've come a long way as a basketball nation since then, and you know to the point now where we're you know we're getting number one draft picks and every we've, we've got ten guy eight guys in the NBA. You know we got we got talent everywhere, which which is why we were disappointed with fourth. But, we thought that. Uh, Thought we should have done better than that. But you were the first, first Australian to play in the NBA. So how was the draft working at that stage? Same as it does now. The crap teams get the high picks. So I went to Minnesota. What pick were you? Seventh overall. Were you there? Did you watch it on telly? No, I went there. Took my dad, my mum, my girlfriend, my buddy, the whole shooting match. Yeah, yeah. It was exciting. And I think someone from Australia filmed, sent a crew over and filmed it all. And yeah, I think they were getting ready to get busy but I shut it all down right mm. because of what we were talking about yeah right. just a general lack of appetite for it and an inelegant an inelegant question but I'm sure it's there online somewhere now what do you get paid when you first get drafted into the NBA in what year are we talking um 91 91 with the seventh pick in the 1991 NBA draft the Minnesota Timberwolves Select Luke Longley from the University of New Mexico. Got, I think, $1.3 million was my first year. Right. Of which they gave me a million straight up as a signing bonus. Now, tell me about that. What what, what is that actually like as a young bloke when someone gives you a million bucks? Well, my old man's famously bad with money. Right. And, um... (laughs) He, uh, one of his, more, I think, one of his worst bits of advice. He told me, he said, whenever you, you know, when you get your first job, Luke, this is before basketball. He said, oh, what I did, I think you should enjoy your money, not save it. He said, I spent my whole first paycheck on champagne and oysters. Slightly different paycheck. <laughs> so on I TV. said, Dad, how are we going to do this, mate? <laughs> should we buy an oyster farm or a, or a winery? You know. Um, but it was, I, I, yeah, that was great. Obviously, it was exciting. I yeah. could, all of a sudden, I could have whatever I wanted. At that stage, I didn't want much. I developed appetites for things because, I, you know, I, I could. But, um, I, you know, I, I, 
Oh, I don't even remember what I spent it on. I didn't really. I, um, my, I was so unfocused on money, and I still right. am. Like I have been all along. I'd probably be a much wealthier man if I would pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, but I suppose when you make a lot, the privilege—that's a privilege that you can Absolutely. afford. Um, but the, you know, my accountant might not have stolen that money out of the foundation. <laughs> but um, you said at that stage you didn't really have appetites, and you developed appetites. We'll skip ahead. Like what? what when you were in your heyday, um, what were you? Spending money on that. The oh, I'm a real. I'm a. I'm a tragic for vehicles, for cars, old ones. Usually, right. I've had muscle car f- fetish for a long time. And, <laughs> fetish. Um, and yeah, so that was probably the the um, worst thing, worst waste of my money. I got a mate who actually buys and has bought and sold cars for me, and he just shakes his head. Says, right. You're the worst I've ever seen. You know. So what's the car? That you've had, that you've just been like, wow, that's that's the one. There isn't one. There's, there's no. There's no fail. That's the problem. It's a, it's 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 a sickness, I suppose. Right. Did, did we get a, quite a collection there at one at point? At one point, I had quite a few cars. I've sold a lot of them now because I live in the bush. It's just hard right. to drive. Drive two cars, um, ten cars, twenty cars. Now, no, at the point. Oh no, never that. No, it's more the turnover. Oh, okay. So the, I think six or seven cars has been my biggest ever at any time. Right. And um, unusual sort of stuff too but also the one of the good the fortunate things is I can't just it's not like I can have a Ferrari collection because I can't fit it in them <laughs> you know so my, my, in the my, uh, my height actually did me some favours in that regard I had to be very selective and a lot of customising which is expensive and yeah. then you sell it and you've got to uncustomise it so you can sell it and yeah but um, th- probably that more of the big man in a moment. Next week on the Howie Games, a bloke who I've had countless requests for since the show started, the stylish one, the beautiful one, the magnificent one, Mark War. That was just my style, and you're right. You, you sort of pay the penalty. There's a fine line between elegant and sort of lazy and not caring, which is, is totally not true. I mean, that's that's just the way I played. And, and once you get um, sort of labelled with that tag... You can't shake it. I mean, Stephen used to get labelled with the tag of gritty and yeah. unfashionable, and that used to annoy him a bit. You know, he'd play a good innings where he'd go out there and, you know, score beautifully. And, you know, so he had that tag, I had that tag. Yeah, that was that was the the tag I had, elegant, and it's sometimes lazy and I didn't care. But um, I can assure you I was trying as hard as anybody. That's Mark Waugh next week on the Howie Games. Okay, back to Luke. You, you you get to Minnesota. Um, were you physically and mentally prepared for the NBA? No, I don't think I was really ready. Um, at that stage, I, I, yeah, I, between the end of college and getting to the NBA was a long time because I had a contract lockout. Um, ah. Took a while. So there's a sliding scale where you get picked. You should get a certain amount of money. Minnesota tried to lowball me because I had a couple of other guys at my position. The agent sort of got in a bit of a... Um, tussle with the management so I didn't actually get to Minnesota till December which is late camps in October right um, so by then I it's hard to stay in real game shape um, in Minnesota and I probably should have I don't know in hindsight it was yeah it was a very bad start so the first couple of years it affected me the first couple of years in fact I didn't really find my game um, again, until an old, an old legend called Kevin McHale from the Boston Celtics mm-hmm. came on the staff at Minnesota, and I connected with him, and he started 
you know, I remember telling him I need a mentor and he, and he laughed. You know, they didn't have mentors in those days. There was none of this personal development crap. We'd yeah. just get out there. And play. That was when beer was what we did for recovery. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which sounds like a wonderful way to approach yeah, sport, let's yeah, be honest, well, Luke. At that stage, yeah, but it was, uh, there was two cartons of cold Bud Light in the middle of the locker room as soon as you came off the court and right. usually took a couple of them on the bus with you on your way to the airport. Um, very different environment to it is now. So anyway, Kevin got there and we started working on my game and um, got me playing quite well. Uh, and then I got traded to Chicago. So as soon as I became valuable, they they shipped me up, which which was good. So what year did you go to Chicago? Uh, Ninety three or four, ninety four. Right. And before we get into Chicago, because like I said, I, I've never been a massive basketball fan. I don't say that with any pride. It's just the way it is. But. Everybody on the planet knew the Chicago Bulls when you were playing for mm. that side. Before we get into it, how do you reflect on it now being part of one of the great sport teams ever to play? Oh, mate, I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. Really proud of it. Sometimes, and humbled by it, like it was really just right place, right time. That team was going to be great whether I was there or not. You know, I was I contributed greatly. I'm not underselling that. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, MJ and Scotty and Dennis and those guys were the spine of the team and I just found a way to put some meat on the bones, you know, but other guys could have done that. Every um, team needs people to play certain roles, though. Yeah, I understood that and I was really clear on that and I was happy to do it and I, I found roles that... Well, Phil Jackson, the head coach, his, I think one of his great strengths was understanding, doing a good job of understanding what a guy can and can't do putting him in a position to succeed where he's doing the things he's good at and not really exposing him too much on the areas that he's bad at. And I had some some areas I shouldn't have been exposed and he didn't let me, you know, he didn't let me, you know, he didn't expose me. He didn't sort of try to... Um, we well, did a good job of managing all of us. You know, Steve Kerr was really bad at some things, but he was great at making shots, so Steve got shots, you know. Right. Um, at that stage, I was great at wrestling big... Bastards, uh, and so I did a lot of wrestling. The big bastards, you know. Shaq was the uh, the biggest bastard out there, and he uh, and I spent my whole career wrestling him. Basically, tell me about playing on Shaq. Just a man, as you wouldn't come up against many blokes bigger than you, but I presume he was. Well, he was not taller, but he was bigger through the ass. You know, like he's right. a big, powerful unit. And I've told this story a few times, so you know, it won't be news to some people, but I, it's worth telling. Is um, I used to, the guys used to call me as a joke, Mad Rise, which is, you know, as in crazy hops, as in got he, he got Mad Rise, man. I wondered about the, an but, email address. But I did, that was obviously sarcastic because I could never jump, right? Right. And so I you know, had 130 kilos, white, all those things. I wasn't <laughs> doing a lot of jumping. <laughs> and um, we we had this strategy called Hacker Shack where, because he couldn't shoot free throws, so down the end of the game, We'd let him get the ball in a good position, then we'd foul him, and he'd miss the free throws, and we'd go down and score. And so it was hack one, a shack. Yeah. So one particular game, uh, we went into hack a shack mode, and I miraculously had enough fouls to give. I told this on Bruce's interview we were talking about earlier, but Bruce McAvaney we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So we're right in front of our bench, and um, hack shack, miss two free throws, go down the end. Michael hits a jumper. Now we're only down by one. Come back, hack shack again. He misses two free throws. For some reason, their coach doesn't take him out because Shaq's proud, right? Doesn't want to come out. He misses two free throws. We go down. I hit a jumper. Now we're fucking up by one. No, hang on. I beg your pardon. The scoreline is we're still down by one. So it must have been down by five to start with. Come back down and 
there must have been a silly team because I just let Shaq get really open under the basket. So they had to throw it to him when they did. And I just jumped on his back, basically, <laughs> to foul him, you know. And uh, he was so frustrated by then that he jumped anyway. And all the guys down the be- down the baseline on my on our bench just fell off the fucking bench laughing because they reckon that's the highest they'd ever seen me get off the floor. <laughs> on Shaq's <laughs> back. On Shaq's back, yeah. He was an absolute beast, really powerful. Like, I, I've never felt overpowered by anyone really except him. Right. Yeah. So you go to the Bulls and... There's the, they'd, you know, they'd had the three-peat, then Michael went away and played baseball and mm. did whatever he was doing, and he came back with that. Um, I think it was Tiger Woods when he announced he was going pro, he came out and said, hello world, which was a famous quote. I think Michael's was simply, I'm back. I think that's right, I'm ro- back, yeah. That's it, right. Was it just a written, uh, I'm back? I think so. I, so I got traded to Chicago while Mike was playing baseball, yep. so I hadn't met him. I just, I just knew that the media van started to aggregate around the front of the practice facility big time big time well before he even came back they must have got wind of it so they started hanging around more and then the day that the day that he came back that would have yeah it just became a circus you can imagine to describe that day when you're out on court for the first time with michael because we talked about one of the um most amazing teams ever you, not only have you played in one of the most amazing teams ever mate you're blessed enough to play and be good enough to play with mm. arguably the greatest athlete full stop. Yeah, well, there were days cool. when I didn't know if I was good enough because he's, he's – he and Scotty Pippen too were just a next level over there in terms of their ability. But the thing that about Michael was the power of his personality too. Like when he started practising with us, the whole practice came up a couple of levels and he just – he drove the whole thing with his with his will and his personality and, and we practised longer and harder, you know. Um, because he was there and we had, um, you know, the scrimmages were more intense. And That year we went 72 and 10. A lot of our scrimmages at practice were were more intense than the games. We were blowing people out on the court. But at practice, Michael and Scotty would match up against each other and me and Dennis would often match up against each other and have these big fights. It was great. So describe some of those blokes you mentioned. So, so what, what, made, um, what made Michael Jordan... So great. Now the Bulls are trying to win it at the buzzer. Jordan has it. Top of the key. Moves up at the buzzer. He did it again. Well, this is perfect storm, you know. Um, physical uh, talents, basketball talents, basketball IQ, all that stuff. But then under the, the ingredient that uh, um, just was the drive to be the best his, and his competitive nature I think separated him from it there's a lot of guys out there that could do the things he could physically but no one had the focus the, just the incredible sharpness of focus on the job at hand um, and the appetite for taking the big shot and the appetite for defending the best guy and the and the personal charisma to pull all that off, you yeah. know, and to, to carry the weight of all that without seemingly be affected by the weight of the, the whole Nike nation that he was <laughs> sort of following and, and everything he did became a trend and um, and the fact that he managed to still focus on the task at hand, to me, every day too. Like I might, on my, in my best, I was three games out of four, I was good, you know, and probably on average two games out of four. I never saw Michael play a bad game ever. Even when we're beating New Jersey in New Jersey by 40 in this first half, Michael's still out there trying to find the next person to rip, you know, next person to, to – he just had an appetite. I used to call it a bloodlust, you know. It was like a 
like a, some sort of a predator stalking up and down outside a cage of goats, you know, just wow. let one out, let one out, <laughs> look, looking at the next bench, waiting, seeing which one he could devour, you know. Wow. Guys sitting on the bench trying not, trying not to look at the coach and fucking don't put me in. You know, the, there was that strong of a sort of a, um, that strong of a appetite for the fray. Yeah, he was incredible. And what did he do for your game? Well, he demanded more of me in terms of um, my that exact stuff I've been talking about. My focus and appetite for the game was good by most standards, but by Michael's it was very subpar. So he demanded more of that of me, and that brought my game up a level. Um, Michael and I were involved in a lot of screen and rolls together. I was basically the guy that was getting in his defender's way a lot, so we had to work together a lot, uh, and he was pretty meticulous about that. Um, yeah, it was really, you know, the culture around the the Bulls was very different to what you see today built around these footy teams of accountability and everyone's got the same voice and, you know, we're all one big sort of family and yep. all that sort of stuff. It was very it was very much hierarchical in, on our team. Um, we weren't trying to all be best mates off the floor. It was very step across the white line and now you're professionals and we'll get it done. And after that, you know, whatever, whoever. So Dennis and Scotty and Michael barely talked to each other because they'd been enemies when Dennis was in Detroit. Wasn't they didn't wasn't they didn't like each other? They just didn't have any common ground. And there wasn't this culture of, well, you guys have got to go sort that out. You guys just sit down and have honest and open communication. There was none of that. Right. And I think there's a good a place for that, and it's important, especially in in this environment. But in that environment, it was really really different. So. Michael and I really did most of our communicating, 99% of our communicating work across the white line on the on the basketball court. And I've only recently really sort of reconnected with him a little bit, um, made an effort to reach out and see what he's up to. And uh, Well, you just give him a call or...? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. How is he? Well, I suppose, yeah, he's good. He's got, a, he's got started another family and he's got his pro team there in the NBA that he's passionate about and... Yeah, he's into it. You reckon he's going to slide onto the Howie Games at some stage? You sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> you think he's a sort of podcast-style operator or not? Oh, mate, you never know your luck. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, that's, that sounds like a long shot. Um, yeah. Scotty Pippen, uh, again, um, for someone that sadly doesn't know a great deal about the game, well, it takes something, I reckon, for an athlete to be as good as that and then play his role in the hierarchy that you've just described it. Because I mm. presume in any other team, in any other era, he's the man. Yeah, and he was when I first got there. Um, it was his team when because Michael had left. And he, he enjoyed that. He was great at it. Uh, and he took it on. You know, it's easy to be given that role and sort of wear it as a man, as some sort of a mantle. And, and But Scotty really did live it. Like, he, he was... Um, Deeply, deeply impassioned about it. He, 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 want, he was, you know, he'd learned from Michael and he was good at it. But I think he's also smart enough to know when Mike comes back on the team that you step, you step down one. In fact, Steve Kerr's famously, I was driving to the game with Judd Bushler and Judd proposed the question, you know, now that Michael's back, oh, this, sorry, I should frame it up better. Yeah. When, when Michael first came back from his retirement and we're on our way to the game, the first game, and I wasn't in the car, but, um, Judd asked Steve Kerr if he thought Phil was going to start MJ, which is, in hindsight, is a silly question. But at the time, I was like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe he, because mid-season. And Steve said, as a general, as a rule of thumb, Judd, when you've got your own statue out in front of the, <laughs> out the front of the arena, you start. 
And I think Scotty understood that Michael had his own statue out there and he was happy to play second fiddle, you know, bat, uh, Robin to Michael's Batman and uh, getting rings was what we are all about. How was that first game when he came back? I, I can only presume it was one of the most crazy nights in American sport because he was the man and he was coming back and he'd gone to baseball and it hadn't worked out and mm. he was the king. Yeah, and I think we were in Indiana and Reggie Miller was um, pretty handy in those days mm. and... Um, Michael and he had had some rivalries before, so it was an interesting game for him to choose to come back. Not like he chose a soft opponent, he chose a legit right. opponent, and um, it was a close game, and I can't remember if we won or lost, but um, yeah, the, the, the media um, presence was was out of control, um, and the crowd, the energy around the crowd was out of control, and you know, Michael gets the ball and the crowd goes quiet, and then Michael scores and the crowd are up, so you get that whole <laughs> loud to quiet, loud to quiet thing that happens with, with big stadiums, um, but almost like they're all organised, but they're not, you know. Rodman. Now, people, that, uh, you mentioned the younger generation earlier on not knowing um, about Animal House. Your average 19-year-old probably thinks Dennis Rodman is a cultural attaché to North Korea, which I'll get your thoughts on in a moment, which yeah. is frightening in a way, but um, he marketed himself maybe before his time, or was it not marketing? Was that just him? Like the tattoos and the nose rings and the hair, and was that just him as a cat, or was he out there too? Well, he's definitely he's definitely authentically odd. Like oh. it wasn't just marketing. Odd, <laughs> but odd, <laughs> odd. Yeah, well, you can elaborate on that if you like. Oh, I'd love but, you um, to elaborate on that. But I think he obviously was a good marketer too. Um, but it was authentic. He was a strange cat, as you say. But so he wasn't. He was gregarious in one sense, in that he, he wanted to dress up in, in chick's clothing and go to weird places and do weird things, um, which was fun. Um, do you ever slide into a dress yourself when you're going out with him? Or not? Hard to find dresses for seven foot two, you know. Dennis is sort of a more regular size, but and the pumps, you know, it's really <laughs> the pumps are the real challenge. What size um, are your feet? Seventeen. Yeah, so not a lot of size seventeen pumps getting around. Um, so I just had to make the best I could, but uh, but he would get on the bus on the way to the game. In like you know a feather bow and a pink tutu and say like fuck let's get them boys yeah. you know on game day yeah 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 no problem and just sort of it's just a weird juxtaposition of messages you're getting you know so that was a strange thing about him um, but a workhorse you know he would work his absolute ass off he'd, he'd play the whole game if you wanted him and didn't seem to have more than one he only had one gear which is flat out oh. a lot of times he'd come off the court after playing 40 you know 40 minutes a game anyway and get straight on the treadmill or the bike and ride for another 45 minutes just couldn't get enough just a, just just a just a maniac for it and now that you see him popping up with old Kim Jong Un and King Jong Il as a uh, diplomat to stop the world sliding into World War Three, which will be a short one if it does get to that point. How, how do you reflect on that, big fella? Well, it's scary, isn't it, mate? <laughs> it's scary. I mean, he's obviously not trained in diplomacy. What do you think? <laughs> but, um... Uh, <laughs> look, I don't know what to say about that. I do know that he tried to get me to go with him um, on one of the first trips. He was doing a... Um, exhibition game with Kim Jong-un's with like the national team versus a team of ex-NBA guys. To North Korea. To North Korea. And um, and initially I was sort of titillated by the idea of looking up the skirt of North Korea. Mm. So I said, oh, all right, Dennis, we'll see me the contract, mate, and I'll see what it looks like. And um, the contract came through and it was 
it had someone else's name on it, like Clyde Drexler's name on it, who's another player, very good player. And Paddy Power was the other, the, the contract was with Paddy Power, not with North Korea or not with Dennis's Paddy Power's a betting agency. A betting agency out of Dublin. Right. And so I was thinking, I don't know, this is looking a bit dodgy. And I, I sat down with a couple of mates, one of whom was a judge and another one who's fairly thoughtful. And they very quickly sorted me out and said, oh, we don't think this is a good idea, which I probably should have figured out myself. <laughs> and my wife was happy about that. And then not long later, I saw that he was over there and a lot of guys who I'd played with and knew were um, sitting behind him and he was being interviewed on television by ESPN. I don't know if you saw the interview, yeah, you probably YouTube it. And I did. As soon as he opened his mouth, I realised that he was shit-faced. You got, you, got, you, got, you got ten guys here, ten guys here that have left their families, left their damn families to help this country as, as a sports venture. Got 10 guys, all these guys here. Do anyone understand that? We do, and we appreciate Christmas. that, and we wish them yeah, well with so cultural no, exchange. No, 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 I'm just saying, no, I don't give a what the, I'm gonna rass ass what the hell you think. I'm saying to you, look at these guys here. Look at them. And um, just the look on the guy's faces behind the bench as that just as it unraveled, and you could just see they were all getting tarred with Dennis's brush, and it was just such a shame. On so many fronts, mm. but I'm glad I didn't go. I think it was a good decision. Though. Yeah, I think that might have been one of <laughs> should have been an easy one, but I was, you know, it was, um, it was, yeah, it was sort of titillating for a moment. But so yeah, the Dennis is I don't know what he's doing, and I've I actually sent him a text the other day to ask him, but I haven't heard back, so maybe he doesn't know. So when um, when, uh, are you texting or when you're ringing these blokes? Um, are you? Whippy got nicknames in Australia. Are you Mad Rise or are you Luke or have they got? What do they call you? you just Luke. 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 Yeah, Mad Rise just sort of stuck his right. email address. So I'm not. I'm not. But wrong. it is Lu- Lucian. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But shortened to Luke. Okay. So mate, playing for the Chicago Bulls when you're in the middle of winning three titles. Then uh, I mentioned earlier on, you, you, this is the biggest sporting team on the planet. This is mm. um, as famous as it gets. This is Cristiano Ronaldo in, in the '80s. Describe to me what it's like playing. At a level like that, and mm. the hoopla around it in the NBA, and this is back in the days of champagne and cigars and money yeah, and yeah, cigars on the bus, mate. It was wild. Um, cigars on the bus, post game. Some, yeah, sometimes. Um, so on the court stuff. Um, yeah, on the was court. really challenging in terms of the level, the daily level of um, just how hard we played and. Um, so I wasn't necessarily a super. I wasn't a super talented player, and I wasn't really necessarily a, a natural at the game. I had to work really hard to be any good. Right. So when you like that, taking it to another level isn't just something you just flip a switch at. You just, it's just it's powerful stuff, you know. So that was I, was, I found it hard, um, but I loved it too, and I think I, I surprised myself. I rose to that challenge really well. So it didn't make you go into your shell thinking, I'm stepping onto these courts that, in your words, these guys are better basketballers than No, you? no, it was the opposite. I knew I was they were better than me, my teammates and most of the opposition, so it made me address that and do as much as I could. And that's when I certainly did my best work was in Chicago and um, really found my place in the game and found out how how I could play the most effectively and I watched a lot of tape and I spent a lot of time with the coaches and um, Scotty Pippen was really good too actually not so much MJ but Scotty was very instructive he understood he had a huge basketball IQ so he really uh, yeah Scotty was the kind of teammate he'd see you having a rough start to the game and he'd drop you a ball here and there and get you an easy score and he'd he was very good like that um, 
I could never be, I could never find a way to be as consistent as those guys. Like I'd have bad nights. And I told this story, I've told this story before too, but um, MJ never gave a compliment, very rarely. And uh, this one particular night I had, the night of nights, I was first half, I think I had, I think I had 18, 17 points in the first half and a bunch of rebounds. I dominated the game. Michael had five points, you know. <laughs> we get in the locker room and Michael's all over me, high-fiving me and hugging me and, man, you play like that, we're going to win a championship and, fucking, you're awesome. And I was like, wow, fucking pretty heavy stuff from MJ. Anyway, went out second half, got two quick fouls, sat on the bench, never had an impact on the game the rest of the night, <laughs> and which is typical me, you know. One minute I'm hot, one minute I'm cold. And I knew that about myself. I didn't like it, but it was I struggled with consistency a bit, at least in in contrast to those guys. And we got back in the locker room after the game and MJ was furious. We won. I mean, I'm never giving you another compliment the rest of your damn life, you know. Right. <laughs> he thought it was him right. that had, that had right. ruined my second half. Uh, maybe it was. But um, so consistency was an issue. But, yeah, so no, I'm miles from the question. What was the question? No, 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 you're not. You're describing what it's like playing oh, yes. in an athletic team where you're telling me that the team is better than... Did, did they respect what you were trying to do to make the team better because you were doing this work and you were looking well, at tapes. They must have because that gets reflected in minutes on the court spot and that on, gets reflected in... The only real measure is how much you contribute and, yeah, if you look at it, I contributed a lot and we're certainly better with me on the court than we were without me on the court. And um, probably one of the best things that happened to me is I, I did my shoulder... Well, it wasn't the best thing that happened to me. I tell you, it was a really shit-ass thing. But I did my shoulder body surfing in LA in the middle of one season, and um, obviously everyone was shitty with me about it. In particular, Michael. What do you say? Oh, I'm not going to repeat that. <laughs> but yeah, you just you know, you'd fucking, give us an idea. You, give us an idea. Oh, something along the lines of you, idiot. You know, what what the fuck are you thinking? Right. Um, you might have to bleep that. But no, it's he a was thing about he was pretty cross, and I mean, I was crossing myself. And I, what I was really cross at is the waves are only about three foot tall. <laughs> Wasn't like I'd been taken off on the on the North Shore of Hawaii, you know. <laughs> um, and I just there was a sandbank where I was, and I didn't see it and hit my shoulder anyway. But what happened was I ended up having to take six weeks out for my shoulder to get right. And in that time, Michael's scoring went down, and he could he could see that he needed me on the court to set those screens and do the things and stretch the floor and do the things that I was doing. And so um, I think that was a bit of a turning point too is, is um, I remember, you know, Michael didn't give a lot of compliments and coming to me and saying, I'm really looking forward to having you back, man. When are you back? Like, when are you back? When are you back? Right. So um, that was a good thing. Uh, you know, I still pinch myself looking back at it. And like I said earlier, it's right place, right time. Phil Jackson had a lot to do with it. Phil had seen things in me that he thought he needed in the team and went out and traded for me and got me and uh, I'm still very close to Phil I've, I, obviously when he's your coach I'm not, not close to the coach necessarily but I was I was certainly an attentive student let's put it that way since I stopped playing for him I've become very good friends with him and I, I greatly admire him as well so he's been a powerful man in my life you know powerful presence and an influence and, um, and that was one of the best friendships I took out of the Bulls years for sure Were you I'm reading a bit about it it was viewed that you were, in a way, mate, the social glue to hold the team together. Yeah. In a team of conflicting alpha males. Yeah. That you were able to. Phil certainly has said that. Um, that's a. That's. I didn't sort of know it as much at the time. wasn't like I painted myself into that role. Right. But I suppose 
being a foreigner, so there was another couple of foreigners on the team. Um, there was white guys, black guys, people from every different sort. And I suppose, um, yeah, I wasn't an alpha male type. I was sort of, I, I'm, I'm, well, I don't know what I am. I'm me, I suppose. But low key. Low key. And I d- didn't bring any ego to the whole equation, um, which I think is important. Mm. And yeah, so I suppose I just got on with everyone and, and um, yeah, did a good job with that. I wasn't trying to do the job was just sort of who I was and how it worked and probably the the one obvious bit is I was the one guy that could seem to connect with Dennis the best um I could go in and pull Dennis out of a bar if need be I was big enough uh-huh. <laughs> um didn't have to do that too much but a little bit so tell me about that side of life you we've talked about what's happening on court and I want to talk mm. about what it's like to win an NBA title let alone three in a row tell me um what it's like off court with blokes that are all just mm. biggest athletes on the planet earning ridiculous wages, I, I guess there's no door closed to you, ever. Yeah. Look, it, I didn't buy many beers in Chicago over that period of time. <laughs> I'm tipping you did um, So there was a certain amount of Beatles about Like we'd rock up at a hotel wherever we were in the country and there would be, I don't know, 500 people there with cameras and... <laughs> Not media, we're just talking punters trying to get a look. Um, so we used to use, have to use aliases in the hotel room. I was Norman Gunston for a whole year. Piss off. <laughs> no, I was. No, no Americans are walking up and saying, oh, we, you know, put me through to Norman Gunston, please. I was, um, I was Stagger Lee for a while. Stagger Lee? Oh, he's a character in a Nick Cave song. Right. Um, who who else to was go I? With? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Norman Gunston. Well, Bruce Dool. I was Bruce Dool for a while. Yeah. I was going with the Aussie icons of my in my own mind anyway. This is my favourite moment of this podcast <laughs> series to date. Any others while you're on it? No, they, they, you're going to have those three. What, those what was, ones I remember. What was MJ rolling as? Oh, don't know. Right. Bruce Dool. Yeah, he wasn't rolling as Bruce Dool, I can tell you that. <laughs> I bet he wasn't. Um, so, yeah, there was, there, was, there was that level of sort of scrutiny around us, you know, and so it was either girls trying to call your room or, or media or just excited fans trying to get an autograph. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was aliases and um, we often went into the hotels through the basement, up through the kitchen, through the, the kitchen elevators to get to our rooms because there's really? people staking out the lobby. Yeah, we got like that. And obviously, it's around MJ and, Scott, and Dennis and uh, to a lesser extent Scotty, but um, all of us were wrapped up in it, you know, and so... Yeah, it felt it, it got to feel normal. It was what we did for three years, man. We won three championships in a row, and we we rolled around like a rock, like a bit of a rock band. And I was um, Phil used to say that I think it was Phil said he thought I was the drummer, you know, the Bill Wyman. Was Bill Wyman the drummer? I can't remember. Anyway, um, <laughs> just sort of yeah. Um, but Phil was great at keeping us all on task and and keeping things in perspective and constantly reminding us of our place in a real place in the world and that sort of thing. It must so. be hard to understand that real place when you were being fated, like fated like mm. that. Well, certainly, if, I mean, it certainly impacted me. I, I began to expect things that weren't realistic or certainly not realistic since that finished, you know. Right. Um, just you, things on a plate? Yeah, and just expect that people want to hear from you and want to meet you and all those things or you, you just you, you, you for a long time I was and we were seemed to be the centre of everyone's attention so and just it, you step out of that it takes you a while to get used to get, it takes a little while to get used to not being the centre of attention I'm, I'm really comfortable with it but you know it's a big difference how do you not turn into a knob 
for want of a better term. Oh, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> right. Um, Do you look back and think, yeah, I, I kept a pretty reasonable control on that in the circumstances? Yeah, I think the better people to ask would be my friends and family okay. and people around me. But my guess is that they'd say, um, on all measures, it was a successful effort. Um, I definitely got carried away here and there. Um, Can you tell me about being carried away or not? Or is that just a general term? No, let's just leave it at okay. general. Um, uh, the interesting thing is part of being really good at something is carrying an arrogance. Of course it is. Um, so I was definitely at my most arrogant in that time. Um, I still haven't figured out chicken egg thing, you know, whether being really good takes being arrogant or whether you get arrogant when you get really good and where that all starts. But certainly um, I think if you ask my friends and family again, they would tell you that I was definitely at my most arrogant and most self... Uh, self... What's the word? Um, I'd carried myself the most aggressively. But surely to go onto a court with these guys, you have to pump yourself up to be in that position. Yeah, yeah, you do. But I don't know. I've always just operated in a slightly different way. But um, And I think the fans and Phil Jackson and MJ would probably tell you they wished I did pump myself up more. Right. I find I make my biggest mistakes when I get pumped up. You okay. know, when you start running on adrenaline, I, I'm always reluctant to get too pumped up. But now and again, mate, I got the chemistry right in my own brain and I got pumped up and played great. So then it looks, you know, looks yeah. like that should work that way every time. But then the next time I got too pumped up, I'd be off the court with two fouls or do something silly, you know, get in a fight. Um, and w- w- were you, again, the images in my head are, are private jets, yeah. card games, cigars. That's all real. Is it? Yeah. So yeah. you didn't fly commercial, obviously. No, we had a we had private jet from MGM Grand, a studio, so it had um, a whole bunch of big leather lounge chairs up the front. It had a bar when you walk in, nice big brass and teak. Well, not wasn't teak, it would have been rosewood or something. Um, bar and yeah, pretty hostesses. And down the back there was four or six sort of glass booths with couches in them. The boys used to get down there and play play cards and smoke cigars, but. I used to hang out at the bar and chat to whoever was around. And so you weren't a card player? No, nah, no. Nah. I've never been a gambler at all. Because that was always part of what was associated with Jordan, the size oh, yeah. of the men's. Competitive nature, mate. It didn't matter what you were doing, who was going to win. He was a, Yeah, he was good at it. He loved it. He frothed on it. So that's why I let him you know, win all those games at practice and stuff. <laughs> of course you did. Of course yeah. you did. Shooting games, you can have these, Mike. You know, one-on-one. <laughs> Or you, mate. Pump you. <laughs> but, mate, how good is that, that, that we can sit here now and you're living in southern WA, as I see, you keep it pretty low-key, you're playing one-on-one games of basketball with, as I said, arguably the greatest mm. athlete on the planet. Oh, me and MJ didn't play a lot of one-on-one, let me tell you that. Right. It's a quick game. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it was, look, it was great. I was, I was still pinched myself. And, yeah. And at the time I pinched myself. The good thing about it and is the further you get from, from it, the, the because I was sh- shit a lot of days, you know. Um, it's pretty harsh. No, it's fair. Fair is better than harsh. So, but people forget that now. So I got more. Fa- you know, people re- people remember the good stuff. It seems like, and don't remember the the shit stuff, the bad days, the the games I lost for us, all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I suppose my memory is a bit like that too. In hindsight, <laughs> I get I get better and better, and the whole the whole thing gets cooler and cooler. Whereas at the time, I was busy trying to not have shit days and being amongst it and trying to, 
you know, trying to win games. And yeah, it was all just what I was doing at the time. I wasn't stepping back and going, wow, this is the fucking best. I, I suppose I did now and again. But since then, I sort of, you look, you, you, yeah, I guess I'm trying to describe the fact that it, it gets, in some ways, gets groovier with distance. Back to the Bulls and Luke in a moment. Last week, the Howie Games featured boxing champion Jeff Horn, a man that turned to boxing to deal with schoolyard bullying. It was hard, and I can remember going home some days and being in my room and mum coming in, and I was just crying, and she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, I, like there's nothing you can do like to stop these kids doing it. Like If you tell the teacher, they're just going to start up. Other kids might start up then as well, saying, oh, he's a dobber, and it's just... Not what it's what you picture as a kid that things are just going to explode if you you tell on someone or you or something happens like that. That's the Hornet last week on the Howie Games. In recent episodes, I've told you about private Howie Games style podcasts for those people close to you. If you've got a relative, a partner, a friend, even a mentor whose story you would like to preserve for posterity or even as a gift to someone close to you, send me an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. I will record an episode one-on-one, not for broadcast, but as a family record for current and future generations to hear. We've been doing these flat out recently. All sorts of stories have been uncovered that families now have forever. It's been super cool. Alrighty, back to the big guy. Can I ask you, in your heyday, what you're getting paid from the Chicago Bulls? I don't know if that's public record. So if it's not, don't. No, it is. It's, uh, it's not something that in today's market. So the, my best salary year was seven million bucks US a year, and that's in nineteen. Yeah, well, two thousand. Okay, was my best salary year. Right. So that's that's the equivalent of an enormous amount. Well, that's an enormous mm. amount of money still today now. Yeah. So the guys now, I think Paddy Mills just signed a twelve Six, million yeah. a year or something like that. And so, so what's it like, mate? For those that will never experience, and I don't mean this in a in a capitalist way, but what's it like when you go in and you see that type of money mm. coming into your bank account? Is there a responsibility? Is it amazing? Does it not make sense? Is it a bit of all of the above? Or because I, I'm looking at you now, like you're as low key as you can get. Ninety nine point nine percent of punters are never going to have that amount of money in their bank account. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I suppose. Is that a crass the, question or not? A little bit. Um, but it's okay. I get it. I get the I get the fact that it's interesting. Um, but the other way of phrasing it, I've probably lost and spent more money than, you, than a lot of people have in the bank account. So there's a little bit of funnily enough, there's almost guilt as well. You know, right. like fuck, I really did. I got to stop saying fuck. That's right. That's right. Fuck, I got to stop saying fuck. <laughs> that's all right. Um, now talking about money, that's when the f bomb comes out. Um, so I, I've had a divorce. So I gave half of it. Well, I gave half of it to the tax man. Gave right. half of it to the ex-wife. Gave the other half, half of the other half, to my boat. Right. <laughs> so you know, you make it's not all sitting there in the bank account. But it is pretty wild seeing it coming in, and it is wild to have the kind of choices that I've had uh, and the freedoms that I've had. I haven't held down a steady job since I've finished playing basketball and haven't had to. Which is could you if you needed to? Oh, I could go drive a ferry. Because <laughs> you're qualified. <laughs> That's right. Nice. Um, Oh, I mean, I, sure I could. Um, I've never found something that I was prepared to give up my freedoms to go and do. Um, and on my bad days, I reckon that's pretty lame. I should probably apply myself for something. And on my good days, I think it's the best thing ever. My surfing's really coming along. Um, what type of board are we riding? Oh, it's a, my, my smallest board is a 10 foot. I'm a stand. I ride a stand-up right. paddle board, and the smallest board is 10 feet. So I'm no virtuoso, but I... Yeah, but I cut a mean figure on the way. Oh, I bet mate. you do. Sorry, I've sidetracked um, you from that. I've been yeah. trying to talk the uh, 
the stand-up paddleboard association into having a seven-foot-and-over league, I reckon I'd be the world champion. I, I might even sponsor it just to get it up. <laughs> I'll come and commentate. <laughs> I might be it. the only guy in the whole, in the whole thing. I'll come and commentate for it. And competing today is Luke Longley versus Luke Longley. That's right. You'd be hard to beat, That's mate. Right. You'd be hard to beat. So, um, what, what, you got, sorry, again, about the money. I've been interrupting you. That's all right. I'm glad to be interrupted on money. So, look, it's wonderful. It's something that um, there's positives. Believe it or not, there's positives and negatives. Um, Do people treat you differently? Certainly. Uh, initially, a lot of people did. Um, that must be hard to deal with. It was different. It was different. It just, it's, it's just the last thing anyone wants to hear on your podcast is anyone whinging about having lots of money. And there are, and so I don't want to, I'm not going to whinge about it because it's not for whinging about Okay, it's a completely different topic then. What's yeah. it like when you meet people for the first time and you are a superstar and you're thinking, mm. do they like me because I'm a good bloke or do they like me because I'm Luke Longley and I play basketball with the Chicago Bulls and I've got a lot of money in the bank? I reckon you develop a radar pretty quickly for that and um, not a lot of people have tricked me on that one, I think. Um, okay. Certainly those, that's part of the assessment that I used to do early with while I was playing. Nowadays, I'm, I, I don't think it happens. You know, the majority of people I meet nowadays don't know don't know any of that, don't don't know about a bank account or a career, a basketball career, you know. Um, I don't look anything like I did when I was playing, so a lot of people don't even recognise me, which is uh-huh. um, interesting. And then the younger generation uh, only really know me from uh, video games. Yeah, cool. You're that guy in the video games. Cool to be in a video game. Yeah. Man. And then the even younger kids, you know, f- my favourite thing about being tall... Um, <laughs> is the three-year-old that asks you the question, the obvious question, how old are you? Because <laughs> they think you're like a tree, right? Their mum and dad keeps telling them, you're good when you, you'll grow up when you get older. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really great question. There's so many little kids ask it. Well, that's, uh, any, uh, we, we, we'll, I won't keep you too much longer, but I'm gonna, I've got a few more questions to ask you. But no I, problem, uh, For those that listen to the Howie Games, they know I've got two kids. I've got a seven-year-old. Uh, who operates is Sky, but we call the pickle. Mm. And my five-year-old Mac named himself two years ago the Big Penguin. <laughs> good, the big good nickname, penguin. isn't it? Like Came up it. with himself. And I normally have a chat with him in the morning. I'm going to go and speak to this guy that played basketball. And they're like, "Oh, show us a picture of him. Show us him playing." So I was showing them some highlights yesterday. And then I say, "Okay, you figure out which kid is more passionate about the person you're talking to." Yeah. And then that child always asks a question. Now you're just talking about kids asking you questions. So the big penguin this onto is, me. You're getting the Good big penguin okay. uh, from last night, just before he put his jammies on and jumped into bed. Hopefully, you can hear this. Hi, Luke. Big penguin here. <laughs> I'm only little. I want to know what to eat to be how big as you, as big as you. <laughs> See. He spends his life wanting to know if he's going to be as tall as me, which is six foot two, and I showed him you, and the first thing he said, Dad, what do I need to eat? He thinks it's all about size at that stage. Well, he, he might be right. It's all about mindset. I think he needs to rethink the penguin thing. <laughs> I think he needs to think more like, you know, big giraffe or something like that. I think he's going to be size limited by the penguin. You know, it's all about, you know, it's all about what you think of yourself, isn't it? Positive imagery. Yeah, yeah. And the, the answer on the food, big giraffe, is... <laughs> Absolutely anything you can lay your hands on. Right. Your little sister's yeah. food, your dad's food, you name it. Right. Doesn't that's, matter what it is, just pump it in. That's good advice for the big giraffe, as you're now going to be called. What's it like to win an NBA title? Is it... Uh, uh, fantastic. It, um, it validates, basically, funnily enough, and I think that's why all these stars are chasing titles by changing teams. The Kevin Durant model of going to where there's going to be a championship is it sort of validates your effort. And when you 
When you define yourself by being a basketballer and that's how you relate to the world, it's handy to have a ring on your finger. And I suppose when we won the championship, when the sirens sounded and the confetti came down, uh, it wasn't the end of the journey by any means, but I felt like I'd arrived. Like I felt somehow like, okay, so I know all the things I'm not good at because you you learn that in sport, but they don't matter anymore. I've won a championship and I'm here and I've done it and I've climbed the mountain and, you know, those people that didn't think I could get here, you know, I'd like to hear from you now without being sort of snide about it. Like mm. you, you feel like you, yeah, I felt so proud of myself. I've never felt prouder. Uh, well, yeah, children make you feel pretty proud, but besides that, it's a great description of mm. um, and then to do it, I guess, three times. D- does it get does it get better? Is it give you even more fulfilment? Does it give you more franking of what you've achieved? Yeah, well, it's felt the same every time. I think the first one, well, the first of anything's the best, right? The first kiss, the first lover, the first beer, the first whatever that is, you know. Yeah. In my case, the first pair of shoes that actually fit properly. <laughs> Um, Sorry, they're a big pair of knives. That's right. Um, so, but the, the number two and three had the same feeling, the same sense of um, pride. And, and uh, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to jump up on the scoring table and punch my chest and, and holler at the crowd and cry. Um, I, I know I've said this before too. I, I wanted to find a quiet corner and just soak up my own feelings um, rather than the feelings of all of everyone else. But, uh, I just yeah, I still remember it vividly, and I, I um, every time I pick up one of my rings, it sort of gives, it sends that that cold of you know that coldness that gold has, like any metal has. Yeah. That coldness goes straight up my arm and straight and just jabs its finger straight into that memory somewhere in my brain. As soon as I pick up those rings, I just feel that jolt of that that feeling of pride. It's a direct connection. Which is I've got two of my rings. I don't even know exactly where they are. They're in a museum somewhere. I should go get them back. But one ring does the job for the moment. And do you like ever put it on and walk around the house? No, nah, mate, they're Liberace. You'd be like wearing that mouse. They're are they? Fucking, yeah, they're huge. So they're quite showtime. Yeah. Um, I like pulling them out now and again and showing them to you. I was doing a talk once at a um, – there was about 40 Aboriginal kids in the, in the crowd. And I was trying to talk to them about um, teamwork and commitment to a cause and all that sort of thing, and I took my ring along and – little buggers they'd played a trick on me <laughs> they pretended someone had stolen it <laughs> they were testing me to see if i was profiling them you know to see if that's what i was expecting and yeah, they got me um anyway that was that was probably the most fun i've had with my ring ever i think i was trying to figure out how to navigate that little landmine um lebron or mj it's a debate that people have constantly in the media now you've played against one of them you've seen the other is there a debate oh, mate i'd be crazy to to i mean i clearly lebron it's up for discussion but um you know i i got there with mj i'm sticking with mj he did he um he's got a special ingredient i think and i mean obviously lebron lebron's got some special ingredients but i'm taking mj in the in the debate every time we in the media here I work in footy a lot. You know, you mentioned Fremantle earlier on. Um, it's really hard to access Australian athletes. This is something that the Americans do so well. Yeah. Where do you sit on all that? Because your change rooms, I presume pre and post game, were accessible to every player, to every media outlet. For a period of time, yeah. Yeah. So I believe that when you start making money from the game, you're effectively going into a contract with the public. That's where I stand. Yeah. 
and you're obliged to service that public. And now whether that's meter access or whether that's the kid on the street who comes up for an autograph, right. you know, you can't forget that and not sign for the kid or not speak to the media. That's that's part of the, that's the contract. And I'm, you know, I think somehow I got a reputation when I was playing as being inaccessible, but um, it was more to do with my choices around not promoting myself. Certainly I've always been happy to to take the media requests and... Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a shame when players lose sight of the fact that it's an entertainment business and that um, that you have a contract with the public and that's, you know, you should have access. What do you get up to these days? What do you enjoy now? You, you, I know you're back involved with Basketball Australia, which is obviously a massive plus for basketball, but when, away from basketball, what floats your boat? Oh, um, you strike me as a, a much more, you seem to be quite a deep-thinking <laughs> customer. Yeah, well, Would you depends agree with who that? you ask. Some days, um, I don't know, maybe, uh, uh, well, uh, well, that'd be nice. Thank you. That's nice of you to say, and, and maybe I am. I, I, I'm i living down, I, I just enjoy, I, I call myself a hat juggler, so I have a dozen hats that I keep in the air. One of them is the assistant coach of the national team. I've got a parenting hat. I've got investment and hats that I keep in the air. Um, I got a really nice vegetable garden. I grow a lot of my own food. Keep that hat in the air. I'm hunting a giant feral cat on my property at the moment. That's fun. I pity that um, cat. T- teaching myself to surf. I'll show you a photo. It'll blow you away. The vet reckons it's probably 20 kilos. This feral cat. I've got a photo of it and fo- photos of the footprints. It's bizarre, mate. It is a monster. I've got a dog trap out at the moment <laughs> right. trying to get it going. That. Um, Learning new things. I'm I've been learning, as I mentioned earlier, at the moment I'm learning how to make knives, which yeah. involves blacksmithing and jewellery and forging and all that sort of stuff. So that's really fun. Um, uh, yeah, and I enjoy quiet time with my wife or my dog or whatever down at my place. Um, I enjoy my exercise, as I said, my surf, and I've been getting into mountain bike riding. I really enjoy my kids. You know, I enjoy. I just enjoy life on whatever sort of terms I can find it. You make an effort still to keep fit. Yeah, yeah. I um, I swim a lot in the summer. Uh, in the winter, I ride my bike. Um, I've got a very mushy ankle, so I have to be selective about what I do. But yeah, I'm not as fit as you. You look look a lot fit. <laughs> you look very fit, yeah, mate. I've what are you few, doing with yourself? I've got a few less kilos to carry around. You, know, I surf a lot. I surf yeah, a lot. I love yeah. to surf. And when it's that cold, it's down here, mate. You know, I lose three kilos every time I go for a surf, yeah, just right. trying to keep warm. Yeah. So. In a way, and we'll wind up, I know you've got things to do. And um, No, mate, I'm here to do this. Well, it's bloody, it's fascinating talking to you because it's almost like you've lived two lives. You've lived the highest pedestal and the highest accolade and the highest exposure. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you know, you are a low-key living 5K, 500K from the most isolated capital city in the world. It's like you're almost two different people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I suppose, you know, maybe that means that it was a really stark contrast to who I am, I think, playing in America and all that. was A big part of the challenge was overcoming who I am yeah. and learning how to be... I learned how to be that competitive. I was naturally competitive. I learned how to be that bloke that was in the NBA because it unfolded in front of me and I just I was there and I had to do it. It's literally how it worked. Um, but it wasn't. I was raised by effectively two sort of hippie, hippie type people. I, I grew up very differently to most of the guys. A lot of the guys are playing with are coming out of the you know, coming out of the projects in America or whatever, and very different appetite for things. So, I probably I think I'm closer to who I naturally am now. Um, and I just had to 
had to learn a lot to get to where I was. Unlearning some of it's been quite hard. <laughs> Unlearning the competitiveness. You know, I didn't take on a lot of things because I didn't want to not be the best at them. After basketball, I thought, oh, well, I've got there now. I've got to be the best at everything. So even now with the knife making, I'm looking at the knives guys are making and I'm thinking, oh, I shouldn't do this because I'm never going to be that good. But the, le- the, lear- the learning is you don't have to be that good. Just enjoy it and enjoy the learning. And so, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I've lived two different lives. I've lived, I reckon I've lived half a dozen different lives and I love it. And um, I'll probably live another one before I go. And what's it like to reflect on it all? Because as you say, you don't generally do this type of thing. What's it like to look back and talk about the amazing things you've achieved and oh. the amazing people you've been involved with? Yeah, really good fun. Really enjoy it. I, um, I've, as I say, I don't talk. Ha- I've had a chance to talk about it a bit more lately because I've been with a national team. And there's been these opportunities. So in the last couple of years, I have talked about it um, and happy to. But it, uh, it is lovely to reflect on it. And it's lovely to talk to someone who remembers and who knows and who's done a bit of research. And because um, I'm very, very proud of it. Like I'm, I am deeply proud of what I accomplished. And you have just gained an insight into how proud, given that it's so far from who I actually yes, was. Like yes. it was a real mountain to climb in a, just in a, uh, in an emotional sense. I had the physical tools, but I had to learn how to be a competitive athlete, and then I had to do that under the microscope of the Bulls and MJ, and I fucking I pulled it off. You know, I right. still can't believe it. Uh, um, that's a great natural conclusion for us to finish. But yeah. um, before we do. Um, one of the great parts of the job I have is I get to meet people like you. Like today, mm. I, I recorded an episode this morning with Bruce McAvaney, who, as I said, you need a champ. give you a best. He's a champion. Mm. You said that before we did this interview, the best interview I've ever done was with him, and that really made me think, fuck, I'm in a bit of trouble. <laughs> and that's the first time I've sworn on this podcast. So Whereas you made me relax I, enough. <laughs> you made me relax enough to do that. I'll have to beep that out later on. Yeah, can you beep mine out? You'll be busy. But Sorry I, about it. I don't want my kids to hear that. Yours, I'm, I'm more than happy with. So it's to me, some of the people I get to meet. So this morning, I spent it with Macca and with you and you've both got such wonderful stories I go for the rest of the day and I'm on a high it's fantastic oh, good on you. It was the, pe- the people that you've met is there people that like you must have met some who mm. have you met along the way that you've just thought wow and that's a tough question because it's a question without notice yeah well my wife was one of them you're a, you're, yeah, that's yeah, very there you go start. honey there you very go, honey. good start by you um, it's funny because I know that what you're looking for probably and expecting is um MJ or athletes Not or what really. have you, but the people that have inspired me the most have actually been people that the names will mean nothing to you who have just found a way to to give more than they take, you know, in the whole equation and um, and yeah, just people I find that live life on terms that they've designed with sort of consciousness to them and 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 yeah, make. Uh, that's, I guess that's my answer. Yeah, I think that's a. I think the yeah. answer reflects you perfectly. So there's a lot. I know a lot of. Um, a lot of parents, which I'm, um, I'm blessed by the fact that I know a lot of parents listen to this with their kids, and I get messages all the time that you know we listen to my kids on the way to soccer training or on the way to swimming training, and um, it's a chance to motivate younger people. Yeah. So people that are wanting to achieve something in life as young people that are listening to you now um, and have heard your incredible story, what what what's the key to success from your point of view? It doesn't well, even need to be in it's sport. It's interesting you ask that question. I, I don't have one prepared. It may, it may bubble through into my brain yep. while we're talking, but I want to top, turn that on its head. Yep. One of the things that does inspire me is it starts with my daughters uh, and my stepchildren as well, um, is how courageous young people are. Like it's a difficult landscape 
the young people are navigating these days, educationally, the job market, the social stuff, the the, the climate, you know, Donald Trump, mm. the whole thing. I'm intimidated by what I would be, I think, intimidated by what these kids stare down every day and yet they attack it with appetite and ferocity and you know, everyone loves to sort of say, oh, kids these days don't or don't do this or don't do that. Kids I admire, I reckon kids out there are just, just going for it and that inspires me to see how brave they kids are these days. Like, it's a big thing. You obviously approach the world with a positive mindset. Um, I don't understand the flip side of that because I like to think I'm the same. Life is much easier when you look at it in a positive mindset, which is obviously the way you look at it. Yeah, well, uh, uh, that's not always true, mate, but I'm putting on my brave face right. today. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, well, we probably should leave it there. <laughs> that's um, a bad place to leave well, it. Well, it's not. It's not. Um, well, you're a man of contradictions. I think you've shown yeah. that throughout this well, whole has Well, everyone has their brave days and their other days and all that, don't they? So that's part of figuring out how to get through life and... and um, yeah, I'll, have, I'll, I'll tell you what, today will be a good day. I've enjoyed doing this. It's fun. Oh, great. I, I do like talking about it and um, when I get the chance. Mate, I really appreciate your time, Luke. It's been, um, yeah, you come into these things and you think, oh, geez, I don't, I don't, often I know the people, I don't know mm. you, um, but you've been warm and inviting and open and I hope people enjoy the episode as much as I've had having a chat with you. I really appreciate your time. Good on you, mate. Thanks for having me and thanks for, um, you yeah, for digging the story. How did I go compared to McAmini? Oh, mate. Fantastic. Oh, you're a Fantastic. good man. Let's yeah. finish there before yeah. you speak the truth. Good on you, Luke. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating man, Luke Longley. What about his stories? What a life he has led. Thank you so much to Luke for his time and his many and varied and entertaining stories. Next week on the Howie Games, Mark War. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener